Tuscan wine, a soup called ribolita, and penis-shaped pasta. This week, we're in Florence, Italy. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we're in a different city or country sampling the food and drink that makes that place's cuisine memorable. And this week, we're in Florence, Italy. We're going to try some Tuscan wine, some pasta, soups, Florentine steak with my guest, Tony Mazzaglia. Tony is an American expat whose company Taste Florence does food and wine tours in this magnificent city. Of course, we can't travel to Florence right now, but I remain optimistic that we'll be able to travel later this year. And if you've got Florence on your list, Tony is the person you want to know. She's lived in Florence for years and knows all the great spots, all the characters in the city, and she's got a wonderful sense of humor, too. And you might remember Tony from a couple months ago when we had her on the show and talked about Florence and gelato and Tony looking up her Italian relatives. But we ran out of time on that episode, so Tony's back and talking about a soup called Ribolita and my crackpot theory about when's the best time at a party to open the good bottle of wine. Tony even confirms my theory with an Italian expression that backs it up. Plus, Tony and I have a good laugh about penis pasta. But first, remember that all the episodes of Destination Eat Drink are available for free at radiomisfits.com. There's 113 of them so far and counting, including the last episode with Tony. That was episode number 99 or episode 107, all about tacos or If you want more Italy, there's episode 90 about Venice or episode 73 with Kate Pearson of the B-52s. So much good food stuff, and it's all at radiomisfits.com. Destination Eat Drink. Tony, welcome back to the program. You know, we're all dealing with this pandemic, and people in travel and tourism have been hit especially hard. You've started doing online tours of Florence. How's that going? You know, if you had told me a year ago I'd be doing my food tour online, I would have been like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. But it actually works fantastically because since we're not walking and we're not limited by actual true distances, I'm able to throw in some extra things. And I've even got a couple of recipes, which I don't don't teach any recipes when I'm walking around town with with guests. So it's working out great because it's my tour – with a twist. And it's also kind of, if you've not taken my tour before, you could easily take my online tour. And then eventually when you do come to Florence, take the the actual tour so you can taste all the food you learn about on the online tour. Or if you've already taken my tour and you miss Florence desperately, you can take the online tour and just reminisce and learn a couple of recipes you didn't (laughs) learn in the physical tour. So um, it's, it's working out. I'm, I'm not making a, a fantastic living, but it's keeping me sane. It's keeping just enough money in the account that you know, keep me going. Keep you fed, keep a roof over your head. Yeah, which is, you know, right now is a blessing. So normally, in, let's say in a normal year, what would I be doing from, you know, from Easter-ish to Thanksgiving? Um, that time frame, that's the, the busy season. And myself and about two or three other guides, um, we are doing, a, a, it's about a four-hour food tour. And we visit several locations, including the Central Market. Sometimes we go to Sant'Ambrogio, which is another market that's fantastic. 
usually Mercato Centrale because that's my neighborhood I lived in as a student in 2002. That's how I ended up in Florence. Um, I came back after I found my family. I, I switched from Spanish to Italian and came to Florence and uh, and never left. I just went home and graduated and came back immediately. So um, the, the tour is really, for me, it's, it's places that I love that I've been going to for almost 20 years now. And there's bakeries, there's gelato, there's wine, some savory things, some sweet things, and balsamic vinegar, which is not Tuscan. I'm going to say it out loud. I'm going to say it proudly. <laughs> it has nothing to do with Florence. <laughs> but if I, like, let's say I go to, I don't know, Phoenix, Arizona, and I take a food tour, and someone's an expert on maple syrup, and they want to teach me about it, it's not from Phoenix, Arizona, but it's an American product. So that's how I feel about balsamic vinegar. It might not be from Florence, but it's such a treasure. And it has so much amazing history and science and magic behind it. Um, and if you want to hear me geek out about something, just talk to me about balsamic vinegar. <laughs> so that's part of the tour, even though it's not a Tuscan product. Um, olive oil. It, it's just there's so many things to taste here. And um, in four hours, we managed to have you taste. Uh, we go to about seven places and you, you taste a lot of things. And you're just full enough that you don't need lunch, but you're not so full that you can't have dinner later on. The central market is pretty big, if I recall correctly. It's been a while since I've been in Florence. Tell me about what it's like when you walk in there for the first time for your guests. It's an enormous market. And it's what's weird is it's enormous, but a lot of people miss it because outside there's a leather market and there's a lot right. of different leather stalls. That, so if you're not, if you don't know what the central market is or where it is, you could easily miss it. Um, up until two or three years ago, there was no sign outside. <laughs> when you look at most maps of Florence, it doesn't say Mercato Centrale. Like they don't have the building on the map. It's an empty block on the map. And I, every time I see that, it just baffles me. So it's, it's very easy to miss. I've had friends from Rome, friends from Milan, um, that have visited me and I take them to the central market and they go bonkers and they, they say they can't believe they never found it before. They're Italian, you know. Um, so when you walk in, it's I would say it's about four stories high, but it's divided into two levels. And the, both levels have been there um, since the uh, 1870s. I believe it was 1874. And it has this beautiful ironwork that kind of reminds you of uh, the, the Milan train station, the Paris train station. Um, it's the same architect that designed the Galleria in Milan near the Duomo, that beautiful space. So it, it, it's very grand, and it was added to Florence uh, when Florence was the capital of Italy for a brief period. So when they wanted to kind of make Florence more cosmopolitan, they built the Central Market, they changed um, Piazza della Repubblica. So a lot of things were changed architecturally. So it's not a Renaissance or even medieval feel. It's more of an 1860s, 1870s kind of feel. Um, and it's just, it's splendid. I mean, <laughs> there's butchers, there's fishmongers, there's cheese shops. Um, and then you have, unfortunately, like a, a sprinkling of the kind of more touristy shops with Pinocchio and little bottles of limoncello that aren't even from Florence. Right, and right. Um, you have all that stuff to the uh, penis shaped pasta, um, <laughs> all that stuff. You have all that too. Um, so, I mean, I gotta, I have to say it cause it's the first thing people notice when they take a tour. They always are like, Oh, you know, I'm going to get that from my uncle. Um, <laughs> so like, okay, you use what your kind of relationship do you have with your uncle? <laughs> with your uncle. 
I don't know. I just said, uncle, I just threw that out there. Poor <laughs> hypothetical person we're talking about. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what happened with their uncle. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, there's these, uh, you know, most of the shops are historic shops, family shops, authentic. And then you have a handful of junky, you know, colored pasta and the thing I just said. Because people are coming into Florence, you know, they come in maybe, I don't know, on a, on one of these tours or these cruises or something. They're in mm-hmm. there for half a day and, and yeah. they might not know, you know, Lemoncello is from, you know, Amalfi or whatever. Exactly. And so they, they just they probably think, don't even know where they are. Yeah. Just grab, grab <laughs> what's Italian, anything that has, you know, red, white and green and, you know, and, and we're on to the exactly. next place. And it's brightly colored and it's, you know, <laughs> But I have to say, you know what, it's not, they're not buying the penis pasta for their uncle. Usually it's people that are taking <laughs> that back. Usually it's people that are buying, um, like you said, the red, white and green and they're buying it for the grandkids or which yeah, I get that because, you know, when you want to get kids to eat something new, you get them something that's fun and kind of exotic. Right. So I get it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm just always surprised at, of all the things that I, I, I introduce people to. Everyone gravitates towards that pasta, man. I can't get them away from it. <laughs> I just can't. <laughs> when you go into the market, Tony, where's the what's the one thing that you always gotta get? Mm. You know, what's your favorite thing uh, to to grab? Very good question. So, um, in addition to going to buy meat and vegetables and cheese and things like that, um, there are a few places you can eat downstairs. The upstairs is now a, like a modern food hall. And they have a lot of high quality stuff. It's not chain restaurants or anything like that. There's a lot of um, small producers and things. But downstairs are only a handful of places to eat because until, uh, well, downstairs is the oldest restaurant in the market is Nerbone. And that is where I, the first thing I crave if I've been out of town or, for example, when we reopen from um, the lockdown here, uh, the first thing I crave is the uh, bolito di manzo, which is just boiled beef brisket. And mm. I get that at Nerbone and you can have it on a plate or a roll. I have it on the bread and I have the roll dipped. You have to ask for the sauce and the dipping. Um, I have it dipped. I have it with the salsa verde, which is that mild parsley and celery and carrot, you know, um, Italian salsa verde. And then uh, you can also get spicy sauce. So I get both sauces. I get it dipped and it's made with love by my man, Stefano, who's <laughs> one of my favorite people. Um, I love so many people in this neighborhood because it's where I first lived and I've really bonded with a lot of them. Stefano has been, the restaurant goes back to 1872. Wow. But Stefano has been slicing the beef for at least 35 years and he's so over it. He's just, he's (laughs) like another day, another sandwich, you know, but he still does it. Even though he's like begrudgingly working, he still does it with loving care. If we're talking meat and we're talking Florence, I guess we can't forget about talking about a a Florentine steak because, you know, this is what Americans know about Florence because it's got the name Florentine steak. Um, How how would you experience that if you were a visitor coming to Florence? The Florentine steak, when you're here as a student, like I didn't have it when I was here as a student because I couldn't afford it. (laughs) Um, So I didn't really experience it until, and then I couldn't, I couldn't eat it when I was here in my early twenties. So it's only been really the last in my adult life that I've been enjoying the Florentine steak. And otherwise you, you wait till your parents come and they take you out to dinner. Um, <laughs> <Right>. But it's because <laughs> it's an investment. It's it's generally going to weigh at least 800 grams, usually even a whole kilo. Um, so a thousand grams, um, wow. which is 2.2 pounds if you don't do metric. 
Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's a lot. And um, basically um, it's, it's not meant for eating by yourself, but if you, you know, there's a lot of things to know about and to learn about when you're coming to Italy in general. And then the Florentine steak on top of that, even most Italians don't know the rules of the Florentine steak, but um, it's going to be served pretty red inside. It shouldn't be blue, but it's, it's not going to even be medium. It's going to be pretty red. Um, and it's on the bone. It could weigh 800 grams. It could weigh uh, 2000 grams, depending on, on, you know, how far down the back they go. And, and if you've got the counter fillet, you know, it all depends, but it's rarely going to weigh less than 800 grams. So it's meant for sharing and any restaurant that's a good restaurant is, is going to recommend that you share it and not get one for yourself. <laughs> it's very rare that a restaurant will say, you know, sell you one just for yourself, um, just to upsell you. So um, when you get it in a restaurant, they charge you by the 100 gram unit. So when you see the price on the menu, it'll say, you know, hectogram and it'll say, um, you know, five euro per hectogram or whatever the price is at that restaurant. So I always say, just go ahead and multiply whatever you see by 10. And that's most likely going to be the price of the steak. So we're talking anywhere from 40, 50, up to 80 euro for a steak. So first of all, if you don't like your steak red, don't go there. Like if you don't like the taste of fish or things that are of seafood, don't get caviar just because it's special and people told you you should eat it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So don't get the Florentine steak if you don't like your steak red. Because if you if you order it well done, they're going to kick you out of the restaurant. <laughs> they're not going to do it. Or at least any good restaurant would not serve it to you well done. Because what happens is, is they have to, you know, hang them to, to uh, I guess you could call it dry aging. It's not quite dry aging, but it's softening the meat over time. And it's going to be at least 15 days. But 15 is like the bare minimum to get the steak tender because the traditional Florentine steak is from the Chianina cow, which is a local cow. And it's actually just like a really stressed out cow that has really tough meat. It's a muscular cow. It's a work cow. Um, it's, it's a tough cow. And so the only way to make it tender is to, you know, let it dry, the dry age for at least 15 days, better would be 30. And that tenderizes the meat enough that it's really pleasant when you eat it, pretty rare, okay? So then if you're going to um, go and do that well done after all the work that everyone went through to make it tender, it upsets the locals. And you don't want to do that. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, and you also don't want to take a Roman who has begged you for a Florentine steak, one of my good friends, he, for months, you got to take me for a Fiorentina. I take him to this place. It's famous. I go to the bathroom for five minutes. When I've come back, he has sent it back to be cooked more. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I'm, you know what I mean? And I was, I was embarrassed. <laughs> I was upset. He ruined the steak. It was, it was awful after that. Let's talk about my favorite topic, wine. Uh, Tuscany yes. is world famous mm -hmm. for its wines. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you condense this down into something that <sighs> that folks can easily digest and understand when they come to Florence? I would say within Tuscany, you've got your Brunello, you've got your Chianti, you've got your Nobile of Montepulciano, and then lesser known, you have uh, Morellino di Scansano, Montecucco. But all of these reds have one thing in common, which is the Sangiovese grape. It's the primary grape of Tuscany. And then you have other reds that are blends, usually, not always, but they can often be a blend and they're often made with French grapes that are grown in Tuscany. And when they're aged in um, the more fancy French style barrique, those are referred to as super Tuscans, not always, but often. And those are the ones that are meant to compete with um, Bordeaux and the, you know, the new world wines that have a lot of oak and things like that, at least 
back when they started making these. So Tuscany has a lot of red wine. Most of it's made with Sangiovese. Some of it is made with other grapes, often French grapes. I'm generalizing, but that would be my summary of the reds of Tuscany. And then you have a handful of whites. So you've got Vernaccia di San Gimignano, which is a great, fantastic uh, dry white. And then we also have some fantastic Vermentino. Um, would I go to Tuscany seeking out a sparkling wine? No. Hmm. Would I go to Tuscany seeking out a fantastic full-bodied red? Absolutely. That's my brief synopsis of <laughs> Tuscan wine. <laughs> Good. I, love I feel it. like that's the, well, you know, the I quickest love San- I've been so far. <laughs> I love Sangiovese, so uh, it's good. It's good mm. for me. Um, if someone wanted to come to Florence and they wanted to go out and visit some wineries, um, what's the mm-hmm. best way to do this? Is it is it go out solo, book appointments, get on a wine tour? What are our options? What What do you think the best way is to do this? There are uh, there are a, a lot of great wine tour companies. Um, I can I, mean, I can definitely recommend the one I worked for um, because I. I learned everything I know about wine from him and from that job. Um, I, I took the so many classes afterwards, but it's called Tuscan trails and they, he does great wine tours. Um, it's small groups, it's high quality. And then there's tons and tons now, but he was one of the first wine tours in the area. Um, so if you want to be able to drink and not have to worry about driving a car, definitely get on a wine tour. What I would not do, I would not get on a tour that takes you to, Pisa, San Gimignano, Siena, all in one day. Too much. That's a lot to do in one day. That's crazy, right? Um, so don't do those tours that are 40 to 60 people in a group. Uh, you're not going to get much out of the experience. You're going to have five minutes in each place. Um, try to find, you know, if you're going to go, if you're going to opt for a tour, opt for a small group. If you're going to do it yourself, find a friend or loved one that doesn't like to drink and make them drive. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, if you want, if you're planning on drinking, then you, it's going to be a bummer if you have to drive. Um, But it is really nice to, if you have the time, you know, rent a a little tiny place, a little, I don't know, agriturismo or a little apartment or whatever, right outside of Florence or uh, right outside of Lucca, one of these uh, great towns in Tuscany and do little day trips. And if, if both of you love wine, then take turns being the driver. One of you drinks one day, one drinks the other day. Whatever you've got to do to make it work. But it's also really nice to have the car and explore and be driving in these beautiful areas in the rolling hills and seeing the cypress trees and the vines when they're turning orange in the fall. And I'll, I mean, there's so many things you're not going to see if you are only on a tour for six hours in a group. Um, but then it's going to be more relaxing if you're with a tour group. So it... It depends on your your travel style. I love this tip, Tony, of sharing the responsibility of driving. Mm-hmm. Like, you, if you yeah. if you split it up into two days, you've got two people. One do, drives one day, one drives the other day. It's that's a really I've I've never thought of that before, and that's a great tip. So Thank thanks you. for sharing that. <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> now in in Tuscany, you know. If friends are gathering together, not going out on a wine mm-hmm. tour, but locals, if they're gathering together, what's their perspective on wine? Like, what would they be drinking? What would they be sharing with their friends? Um, so, you know, everybody has their different friends. Like, you've got your grocery store wine friends, and you've got your <laughs> winery wine friends, you know, and you've got your, like, I've been putting this bottle aside for a special occasion friend. So it's the same here. I mean, I have 
um, friend, a lot of friends that are in food and wine. So I have a lot of friends that I drink fantastic food and wine with, and we'll get together and like everybody will bring a bottle and we'll pick a theme. You know, it might just be, it might be everybody brings a San, you know, Sangiovese based wine. So one person brings a really great Brunello and another brings a great Chianti and we taste how different the, the Sangiovese is in different parts of Tuscany or, you know, everyone um, just brings their favorite wine. Um, so when you have someone that or a group of friends that really love wine, it can get, it can be really amazing. Um, I also, I hang out with a lot of the, uh, a lot of the great wine shops in town. I'm friends with some of the owners. So I've been to some dinners that they've organized where it's all, you know, um, caviar and champagne or, you know, there's always a theme. So you could go to that level and then you can also just go to, I got to, I got to get to know your friends. Yeah. (laughs) Again, this is like the last 10 years. The first 10 years, it was straight up discount grocery store. Um, (laughs) Actually, the first years uh, before I I started doing the food tours and when I was just starting to work for that wine tour company, um, I was doing all kinds of odd jobs. I, I worked as a wedding photographer. I worked in a sandwich shop. I did all kinds of things. I couldn't even afford to buy good cheese. Like I was living off of ricotta and uh, chickpeas. Wow. Those were my, those were my chickpea years. Right. I was in shape. <laughs> it's like, an, so I barely drank wine back then. I, you know, I didn't even realize the world of wine I had around me because I couldn't afford it. Um, so, but then you have a lot of friends too that are just going to get together and, you know, you're going to have this friends where people just bring random bottles and unfortunately they open the worst bottle first and you're sitting there <laughs> staring at the good bottle that you brought <laughs> and you make a mental note, don't bring good bottle next time. <laughs> that's the key, man. Uh, open the good bottle first. I mean, that's the, that's the thing I yes. always go for. Open, because by the third bottle, who cares? You know? It all tastes good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we say in Italian, tutto il mondo è paese. So you know, uh, meaning like it's even here, it's all the same. You still have that experience of, you know, the the person that doesn't open the good bottle and puts it in there, puts it away when you bring it to their house. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the worst. The worst one time I brought a really good cheese. I'd been on a trip and I brought it for all of us to eat together and they didn't open it. And I just, I kept thinking like, can I go back in the kitchen and stick it in my purse? Like, <laughs> I really wanted to try that. <laughs> it's like, do not mess with my cheese. <laughs> this, this is like, you're, you're thinking of, of, of what's going through their mind. They're like, oh, these friends aren't good enough for this cheese. I'm saving this for other people. I know, but I brought it. I know, like that's the thing. The it's like you brought it. <laughs> you're like, what the heck? Exactly. <laughs> or it could have been a fish dinner. You've been in Italy so long, you're probably not aware of this, but there's a, actually an episode of the Seinfeld TV show that deals with this. Um, they bring a, a loaf of the fancy rye bread and they don't put it out. Yes. And so they steal it and take yes. it back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Same> yes. <one. laughs> I love I love Seinfeld. <laughs> All right. So yeah. <laughs> a, a, a trip to Italy mm-hmm. wouldn't be complete without pasta. And what I yeah. love, what I love about going to Italy is every region, every town, every mm-hmm. village has their own little pasta, their own spin on it. When we go to Florence, what is the specific pasta like, and what should we be sure to get when we're there? I um, mean, definitely, and they've gotten more popular. Like I've seen them in the states the last few times I've gone home. Pappardelle, which mm. are the uh, long, flat, wide noodle. Mm-hmm. So they're flat, but they're like about almost an inch wide sometimes. Those are fantastic with meat sauces or with mushrooms, like porcini mushrooms. Um, so I would say when you come to to Florence and other parts of Tuscany, try pappardelle, especially with meat sauces, wild boar, 
Um, if you're lucky and you find a good duck ragu, that's the ultimate to me. Um, so that kind of stuff. Uh, I think a lot of people come and they're looking for, you know, that plate of pasta with a lot of tomato. I mean, you are going to find tomato sauces here, but we don't use as much sauce in Tuscany. It's more um, tirato. Like there's, it's just not, a, it's not drowning in the, the sauce here. We, we kind of finish cooking it in the sauce and it's just the right amount. Sometimes it leaves you wanting a little more sauce. Hmm. Whereas when you go further south, you have more sauce. Like when you go down to Rome, there's a lot of tomato sauce and all that. If you're looking for tomato, Rome is the place. And then when you go down to Sicily, you get all the, the tomato, the garlic. Um, I'm generalizing, but an eggplant. Tuscany, a lot of the time, it's it's less sauce than you would expect. And then you get used to it and you love it. Is there a uh, is there a specific place that you think, oh, these guys really make great pasta? I mean, there are there are uh, certainly a lot of places that make great pasta in Florence. Off the top of my head, because we're talking about those meat sauces and things, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, Casalinga, which is right right around the corner from the Santo Spirito Church. She, uh, the mom, is, is still in the kitchen, and she makes this fantastic duck ragu. Um, I'm particularly obsessed with duck ragu because I used to date a guy who was a hunter. He and his father hunted, and then his mom whose name is Pasqualina, and I, to this day, I love her and revere her, <laughs> and I miss her food. <laughs> um, she made the best wild boar ragu, the best duck ragu, um, lepre, so your hair, wild, you know, like, uh, rabbit and wild hair, uh, just any, any of the ragu sauces, she, it was just the perfect balance the perfect flavor. It was so good. And now when I go to restaurants, which is a very Italian thing, you go to a restaurant, you order something and then you're like, eh, my mom's is better. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, eh, Pasqualina's is better, you know. <laughs> but Casalinga is one of the few places that I've had it and I've been like, this is comparable to, to Pasqualina's sauces. So I've found my, I don't want to say Pasqualina replacement because no one will ever replace Pasqualina, but um, since I am no longer dating her son, <laughs> I have to find my pasta elsewhere, and I found a good restaurant to get it. <laughs> um, so Casalinga. And then if I want to have um, more inventive things, I love uh, Coquinarius, which the original Coquinarius is right around the corner from the Duomo, uh, just one street in from the cathedral. And then they opened another location on the way up to Fiesole that has a great view and a big terrace. Oh, I love that um, place. Coquinarius does, they have seasonal menus. Have you been there? No, but I bet the the town that uh, you go and you have the view. Um, it's so beautiful up there. It's beautiful. It's, the view is just spectacular, and it's just it's a totally different feel. Um, so Cochinarius has they're famous for their pear and cheese. They're called um, they call them raviolini, but a lot of places would call them fagottini. They're like you know those like bozo bags, like when they would put the little bag on their shoulder on a stick. Yes, they, they're shaped like that. Right. Right. <laughs> So it's like that. It's that shape. And it's filled. The ones at Coquinardias are filled with, you can feel like the little fresh chunks of pear. So it's not ground mm. up or pureed. And just, just the right amount of cheese. And then they've got them, I, I want to say it's butter. Could be olive oil, but I'm pretty sure it's butter. And just a nice dusting of Parmigiano. And it's just so good. And they're really rich. So I like to get those. I like to share them with someone. And then they have seasonal specialties. So they have one they do in the summer that they're... Stuffed pasta, sometimes it's a raviolo, sometimes they're round, sometimes they're square, but they're always stuffed with um, like a mixture of scallops and something else. And then they do this super velvety tomato puree, but just like a bed of it. And they serve it on top and then they sprinkle it with, I want to say it's um, 
poppy seeds. I didn't have them this year because I, you know, I, I haven't really eaten out a lot this year. So, um, yeah, poppy seeds on top and it, they're just so delicate. So Coquinarius does stuff. The thing is, is that the owners are Tuscan, but most of the people in the kitchen are Sicilian. Hmm. So surprise, surprise. Awesome. <laughs> and they're doing a lot of fantastic stuff with, they take traditional ingredients and they play with them while still respecting them. I love the sound of that stuffed pasta with Mm. cheese and pear. I've never heard of that one before, and it just sounds amazing. It's really good. And there there are a few places that make um, different variations of that. And in Florence, there's another place called Quattro Leoni, which uh, I like. It's Yeah, it's a good restaurant. Um, They have an outdoor terrace. It's one of those – it's my standby place. I actually take a lot of visitors there when people come from out of town because they they do dinner earlier. They do dinner at 6.30. Hmm. Uh, and their food is really good. It's just not my favorite place. But um, they do the the cheese and pear ravioli or actually the same thing, the little fagottino. It's probably, they probably buy it from the same place. But um, but they do it in a creamy sauce with, I want to say there's like a drop of gorgonzola in the sauce, which oh, is also nice. fantastic. Oh, that that works great. beautifully too. So um, yeah, uh, Quattro Leone does it. Coquinarius does it. And then there's maybe two or three other places that are also serving the pear and cheese. Um, Pecorino cheese and pear are really a classic pairing together, especially in Tuscany. I don't know if there's anything better. Yeah, that's fantastic. The Tuscans are known as bean eaters, so beans are super (laughs) popular. Um, Any Mm -hmm. particular bean dishes that we should be on the lookout for when we're in Florence? Absolutely. Um, So uh, someone asked me this a couple weeks ago, and I like, you know, the next day you're taking a shower and you remember something and you're like, yeah. oh, man. Should've so I'm going to say it today. <laughs> yes. Uh, the first one I'm going to say, which is less obvious, uh, along the coast, you can get, they're called achuge a la povera. So like the poor man's mm. uh, anchovies. Yeah. And they're not the ones that are, you know, in a can with salt or in the oil that are kind of that brown color. They're like the really fresh white ones that are just under a little bit of olive oil. Right. Like they're super fresh. And they, they kind of drape them over... Either they drape them over cannellini beans, or sometimes they'll drape them over maybe some boiled potatoes. But um, since we're talking about beans, (laughs) (laughs) I like the bean version. And uh, I've had them several times on the coast, achuga alla povera, with the uh, cannellini beans and the fresh anchovies. And so good. And like a little tiny bit of oil. And maybe I think the anchovies have a little tiny, just a zing of um, vinegar but just the right amount. It's super delicate. Good, good. Uh, and then the more classic stuff you think of when you think of Florentine uh, beans, um, you know, cannellini beans are, are king here. So um, we make soups with them. So we make our ribolita soup with them, which we can go into later because um, that's got a lot of, a lot going on. But um, the, the cannellini um, uh, fagioli al uccelletto with sausage and tomato and sage or rosemary, depending on the family. Um, and then I also, one of my favorites, it's such a simple thing to do. And when I make it for people, they're like, seriously, it's so good. And I didn't think it was going to be good. It's just a crostino. And you just, you toast the bread. You put some olive oil on the bread. You do a very quick rub of raw garlic, depending on how much garlic you like. I just like a mini rub. And then cooked cannellini beans on top. And no ingredients added, just drained and heated. Um, and then you douse it with olive oil, good Tuscan oil, salt and pepper, 
maybe, maybe some sage. My girlfriend makes a, a dish almost identical to that. She uses rosemary instead of instead of yeah. the sage. But it's it's yeah, it's one of my sweet. favorite things, and it's the easiest mm-hmm. dish to make. But I can eat that by that can be dinner. Like if I have that yeah. and a nice bottle of wine and some crusty bread, yes. I am set. That's all I need. Exactly, exactly. Like in the winter, and you can do the same thing. I know kale is really trendy right now, or it was like three years ago approximately. But <laughs> but in Tuscany, it is a very traditional ingredient. And you can do the same thing. You can just boil the kale until it has no life left in it, but it still has flavor. And and I don't mean like the curly kale. I mean like the, the beautiful lacerata, the dinosaur kale. Right. Chop it up, boil it if you want to get really good, put some pork fat in there. Um, and then when it's nice and wilted, you do the same thing. Toast the bread, olive oil, rub it with garlic, put some of that drained cooked kale on top, salt and pepper, lots of olive oil. Sounds fantastic. So good. So it's just like the bean thing. Like you could just do like two kale and two bean and a nice light bodied Chianti, like a nice lighter Sangiovese goes beautifully with the beans. Mm. Yeah. So that's, that's the essence of Tuscan food too. (laughs) You're looking at it. It looks boring as all get out. There's like maybe two colors and there's very little presentation generally speaking, but Whatever you're lacking in presentation, you're getting in flavor. You know, there are fancy places to eat in Florence and in Tuscany. Tuscany is a, a rather mm-hmm. wealthy region. So, you know, as yeah. it's become wealthier, the quality has gone up and, and things have gotten fancier. But still, for my money, the best thing is, you know, the rustic cuisine, the peasant cuisine, you call it the poor cuisine in, in Italian. Absolutely. This, this is what this is what I love. Um, you know, simply prepared, high quality ingredients. Uh, you mentioned the soup before we let you go, Tony. Talk about sure. the uh, ribolita. I think is how you say it. Yeah, uh, ribolita. So ribolita literally translates to reboiled, and okay. um, because you're reboiling and it ends with an egg, a soup is is feminine. So um, it's a reboiled soup <laughs> and. Um, and why are we making soup with bread? Because the bread of most of Tuscany, especially Florence, um, does not have salt in it. Um, and it just goes back to there's historic reasons and taxation and things like that. But um, now they can afford the salt, but they don't want it in their bread. They think that the unsalted bread is fantastic. Um, <laughs> and and then it goes stale after about five minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> you end up with a lot of bread and hence all these recipes we have with oh, leftover okay. bread, panzanella, ribolita, yeah. papel pomodoro, all these different bread recipes, right? And the, the biggie though is the ribolita because you have um, usually the general ingredients are going to be your base of carrot, celery, onion, and then cannellini beans. And of course, uh, the kale I mentioned earlier, mm. um, some people will use other greens like chicory or, um, things with like a thicker stock. It depends cause you find it all over Tuscany, but in Florence, I find it to be made with kale, the beans, it's not too solid. It's not too liquidy, but what's happening is, is you're, you're making a broth, you're adding it and you've got the beans and the kale. And then what gives it all the body though, is you're putting your leftover bread in there and it soaks up all the liquid. So when you first make it, you've just kind of got this kind of stalish bread and all this other stuff. It hasn't really come together yet. But then when you reboil it, so generally speaking, the next day it's better because uh, you reboil always. it. Yeah. Hence why you call it ribolita. And it's really good with some, you know, high quality Tuscan. I mean, it could be from other places, but since we're in Tuscany, high quality Tuscan oil, a little dash of pepper and, um, and if you want to put cheese on it, you can, but we tend to put oil on our soup here when we have good oil. 
Is ribolita the kind of dish that would just be served in people's homes because you're using leftover bread? Or would I find it on a menu in a restaurant? Good question. Um, it's You'll find it in a lot of uh, restaurants. Um, you know, it's going to be served in lieu of pasta. So, you know, we have our, oh, good. Uh, I, I love my stuff on separate plates and everything's <laughs> separate here. So, <laughs> and not just on separate plates, but they don't bring it all out at the same time. So you get, you know, you sit down, you have your antipasti, then you have soup or pasta, then you have your meat and your vegetables, then you have your dessert, and then you have your coffee and all that other stuff. But um the, the ribolita, you would generally have that instead of having a pasta, or sometimes they'll serve like a little tiny amuse-bouche of ribolita. <laughs> it's like more uh, fancy, fancy and um, modern Tuscan restaurants would do that. But sometimes they'll have it as an uh, antipasto, like a little tiny mini bowl of it in a mixed antipasto. But it's something you, you definitely want to try, and you can easily try as long as it's cold out. You're not going to easily find it in the summer because, you know, Italians eat seasonally and the right. vegetables, but also the temperature of what they're eating. They're not going to eat a lot of soup in the summer because we don't have very good air conditioning. Tony, it's just been great talking to you. Unfortunately, we as Americans can't come to Florence right now, but we can yeah. do your virtual tour. And we'll have a, to do that. <laughs> yeah, we'll have a link to that in our show notes so Thank that you. folks know how to uh, how to reach you. But Tony, it's just been great talking to you. And man, I you know, like I mentioned, I haven't been in Florence in so long. And now I just I got to get I got to get us back there because I'm really excited about the food and some gelato and some wine and some ribolita and all this great stuff that you guys have in Florence. So thanks for- I mean, just talking about it, now I'm hungry and it's all around the corner for me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm starving too. (laughs) And I'm 3,000 miles, 5,000 miles away. Um, Great talking to you, Tony. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Okay, there you go. The entertaining Tony Mazzaglia of Taste Florence. Check out her virtual tours of Florence at tasteflorence.com. That's going to do it for this week. Next week, it's all about small plates on the show. Tapas, pinchos, chiquetti. If it's on a small plate and it's snack-sized, we're having it next week on the program. Until then, go to DestinationEatDrink.com. Since we talked about Florence this week on the show, I decided to keep the Tuscan theme going on the blog. There I have a story about the Tuscan town of Lucca and seizing the moment. That's at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. Wear your effing mask, and I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.